we come once again to the Word of God, and we're going to be all over today in a lot of Scripture, and we've started a series we're calling Worldview, Faith for All of Life, and this is the third of a 10-part sermon series where we're going through um, differently than we usually do in the sense of usually we're just going straight verse by verse through a book and we believed given the lack of understanding among the church in general today that we don't always know how to think like a Christian, have a world view and and could also say a life view. So it's not just a world view, it's a life view, world and life view on how we see everything, how we see our families, the family, how we see government, how we see the church, how we see creation, how we see your job or your business, and everything you do, your exercise, your lunch today, your child raising, all of it. How does all of it seen from a biblical perspective. So that's what we're aiming for, and these first three sermons are really foundational. So we're going to be laying a lot of groundwork. We already have. Last week we talked about uh, creation, and we'll review that in a minute, but um, we speak of the gospel regularly and, and, and as should be. The gospel is good news. That's what the word means literally. It's good news, but I, in thinking about how we respond to the gospel and, and how we proclaim the gospel to a culture really that is, is ignorant in many ways of, of anything foundational of the gospel. So I think it's helpful for us as Christians to understand as well for our, for our evangelistic outreach and such, how do we communicate, how do we share these amazing truths? The gospel is good news, but to be good news, it must have a context, Right? Think about this. The battle was won. Is that news? The girl was married. The job was completed. The house was sold. Those are all headlines, right? Is it good news or not? What's the context? The battle was won. It's not good news if you lost. <laughs> the girl was married. It's not good news if it's the one you wanted to marry. <laughs> right? <laughs> The job was completed. Well, that might be good news unless that job was by a bunch of thieves to rob the bank. The house was sold. Great news unless it's the one you wanted to buy. So all, all of it, the, the context matters. And so I think sometimes when we, when we think or when we communicate, when we walk things out in, in our world today, we, we have Christian headlines that we share, but we don't even always understand them. Jesus died for me which is the best news. What does that mean? Why is it good? And then how does it affect how I live today? So all of this in 10 weeks, we're not getting it all done today. We're gonna try to get a lot done today, but I got a lot to, I'm gonna shoot at you with a fire hose. In brief review, Pastor David kicked us off a few weeks ago with truth, right? What is truth? Truth is that which conforms to reality, truth is reality. In essence, truth is what God says. Truth is found in the word of God. The word is truth. And then last week, we looked at three things. 
about creation and covenant. We saw that God relates to humanity through covenant, covenantally. We're going to dive into that a little more today. We saw that the foundation of the Christian worldview is creation. It starts at the beginning. You can't properly understand how to think Christianly unless you can go back and properly understand the beginning and then, and then the end. And we're going to head there. We said that the, the Bible itself can be summarized in three words. Now, I asked a, a couple of toddlers earlier this morning what those three words were, and they knew. What are they, church? There you go. Well done. Creation, fall, and redemption. Summary of the whole Bible. And out of that, we can begin to constructively build a biblical worldview. And then we said, thirdly, that as creator, God has covenantally structured his cosmos according to his unbreakable laws. Written into creation, in, into creation, just like gravity. That if, if they're broken, there are consequences. We pulled out of that the creational norms that I, my friend Andrew Sandlin, uh, I think, labeled correctly. There were seven of them. We talked about the cre creator-creature distinction. We talked about humanity created in the image of God. The male-female distinction. The cultural mandate. The Sabbath. The goodness of creation and fruitfulness. All of this found in the first chapters of Genesis. In the creation history. Not story. The creation history. And God said it was all very good. So we start there with creation, and then today, really continuing off of where we left off last week, three points to share with you this morning that I hope to get done in a reasonably fair amount of time, <laughs> but it's going to be difficult. But the first point is our covenant creator reigns over all he has created. Secondly, the fall of Adam was a cosmic rebellion against the covenant God, which disastrously affected all of creation. And thirdly, Jesus Christ, our covenant head, is progressively placing all things under his rightful reign. So in understanding the big picture, we have to zoom out and see the big picture according to creation, fall, and then we're heading to redemption. We're going to spend a lot of time on fall today and what that means, and then by grace we get to move into redemption and what that looks like from Scripture. So point number one, our covenant creator reigns over all he has created this word reigns is all over Scripture in many different ways. I listed several out there for you in your outlines. It speaks of another word that's used throughout the Scripture of, of kingdom, the, the kingdom of God. I appreciate John Piper's explanation of this word, kingdom of God. The concept when he says this, I think the most important thing I could say about the kingdom of God that would help people make sense out of all the uses is that the basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's reign, not realm or people. Usually that's where our minds go. But it's God's reign, and where is God? He's everywhere, so where does he reign? Everywhere. Wherever God is, is the kingdom of God. Piper says the kingdom recreates a realm. The kingdom creates a people, but the kingdom of God is not synonymous with its realm or its people. We see this, for example, if we consider Psalm 103, verse 19. 
It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And you can hear the basic meaning of that word kingdom in that verse as rule. It doesn't mean that, that his kingdom rules over his realm. It means that God's reign or God's rule governs what? All things. Everything. He, he sits as king on his throne of the universe and his, his kingly rule, his kingdom and his, his reign, if you will, is what governs all things. The basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible then is rule or reign. You could summarize it in one of those words. His reign, his, his actions, his lordship, his sovereign governance over every molecule. Jesus is Lord. Reign, he, he's the ruler, that word. Kairos, right? Kyrios, rather. <laughs> It's the, it, it means Lord, it means ruler, it means governor, and, and according to the Romans, they said, who's Lord? Caesar. Caesar's Lord. Caesar's the king. And the Christians would not capitulate. The ancient Christians were persecuted for one primary reason, not because they asked Jesus into their heart and lived a private, quiet life. They were persecuted because they would not stop saying, Jesus is Lord. The Romans had a way of dealing with people that they would go and conquer in other lands and say, you can have your religion. You can serve any God you want, worship any God you want, do it your way. Have some private, inside, internal religion that you can worship your God, but you must not, you must bow before Caesar as Lord too. And the Christians would not. Why? Because they had a king. They had a ruler. They had a governor. They had a God who was reigning, and it was Jesus. We often struggle with this terminology and concept, a lot of times because we see rule as a bad thing. As, as, you know, if, you, if you hear rule, reign, kingdom, and you think oppression, and you think uh, not good thoughts, you think negatively, you don't have a great understanding of biblical reign. Godly rule, godly authority, godly kingdom is wonderfully good as God himself reigning is the greatest of reigns. And it also includes his fatherly love and care and kindness because his reign is a covenantal reign. We talked about that last week as far as this, with this understanding of, of covenant, but covenant has to do everything to do with relationship. It's, it's not a contract where you buy a, a car and fill out your paperwork for an auto loan. It was a contract that defined and determined a relationship. This is a covenantal reign, a covenantal kingdom, a covenantal rule where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. We see all of this covenantally throughout the book of Genesis all the way from the beginning. Let's read some of the passages to review them. We pick up actually from where we left off last week, Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning The sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins with this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. We've seen God create man. We'll talk more about that here as we move forward because there's a, there's a more detailed account coming up in chapter 2. But then we see at the end of creation, God declared everything is good and now everything is set in covenantal relationship where God had separated things from one another and then put them in covenantal relationship with one another. Most importantly, himself with his man. Himself with Adam. And he gave him a calling and a commission to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all the things that I've created. Everything is, is good, everything is, is very good, and God rests. And what we see here is, is on this seventh day when God's work was complete, God comes to rest, to, to, to dwell in. Don't think because he was tired. Don't think he needed to kick his feet up because, whoo, that was so tough for him. It, it's a rest that when we look at biblically, describes that God is coming to dwell in and to fill his creation. He's hinting at something here that's extraordinary to consider that the universe, in essence, is is his cosmic temple. In creation, what God has done is made himself a cosmic temple that displays his glory and is there for his glory. Moving forward from that understanding, we we continue on in Genesis 2, and we see something in in a, this, it's not a second account. A lot of people are going to say, there's, why are there two creation accounts in Genesis? There's not. There's one, but there's there's one here in chapter 2 where it actually zooms in, if you will, on, on the sixth day, on the creation of man, because that is the pinnacle of creation. And God personally and intimately here is going to form man from the dust of the ground and then, and then woman from the rib of man, which we'll talk more about next week. And God graciously grants them a priestly work. You'll see it. Extending the, the Garden of Eden and its blessings to the whole earth was his goal. Verse 4 of chapter 2 of Genesis, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. So you see a barrenness, if you will, no bush of the field. It's it's not cultivated yet. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then verse 7, watch this, as God actually comes down and enters into this covenant with man. In verse 7, then the Lord God, we know that immediately is different. Every account of God up until chapter 2, verse 7 so far says God, Elohim. 
In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And now, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, God invokes his, his covenant name, the name by which he revealed himself to, to his people. The I am, I am who I am. I am your God, you are my people. There's a relationship here. There's a, there's a closeness here. There's, it's not arbitrary. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Do you see the picture? The, the, the love and the care of God who, would, who comes down to the earth and, and here's this man that he forms from the dust and he, he puts it together marvelously and it's, and it's good. And then God picks up the lifeless body, if you will, and, and breathes into the man his own life. And man becomes a living being. It's an incredible thing that's happening here in this verse. He is the transcendent God, the creator God, the, the majestic Elohim, but he's also the Yahweh, the covenant Lord, who is close and personal and intimate as he forms Adam out of the dust. God takes particular and special care in informing and breathing life into man. And let me add this, he does this continually for all his creatures. David knew this later in the psalmist. We would write about how God had formed his inward parts. You knew me before I was even born. I'm majestically and wonderfully made. It's one of the reasons as we look at worldview why, why abortion is so horrible. We don't build these things up from political reasons, these, these concepts and ideas. It's, it's because of who God is and what he's done. Man becomes a living creature. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted in a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole of the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. You ever come to the Bible when you read things like that and you just kind of skip it? Or you, you know, like, well, what do I care about the region? Why is it important? Because as I said earlier, the Bible is history. And all of it, it's not some fabled story. It actually places real time and real space and real matter and real land together. It's, it's making sure we understand that this is not just some fable. This is the word of God in history. This is the God of history. He mentions the rivers. And, and in creation, we see these rivers. The four rivers really indicate the... Biblically, cosmic wholeness, the spread of the blessings of Eden to the four corners of the earth, right? We have north, south, east, west going out everywhere. And out of Eden, the central place, God's glory and beauty flows out everywhere. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man 
and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Important words. God graciously not only breathes into Adam personally and intimately the breath of life, but then he puts Adam in a fruitful and beautiful Garden of Eden. It means delight, the Garden of Delights. It's full of of, of nutritious food, and not only nutritious food, good, delicious food. Isn't it amazing and good and kind of our God to make food that tastes good? He gives Adam this delectable garden full of these delicacies of delicious food that he can eat of. And then he gives Adam the blessed task of working and keeping it. He's He's to guard the garden. He's to protect the garden. He's to maintain the garden. All of which requires a four-letter word called work. Very good. See, y'all think that's from sin. Maybe your job is, but work is not. <laughs> work is pre-fall. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Work was created as a blessing, and, and it was created in such a way that, that Adam here is a priest if you will, of God's temple to to, to work and to keep it. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God speaks to the man and commands the man. And in this we see the incredible valuable, high status of humans in God's creation. Human life. Human beings. How do you see that in a commandment? If we see commandments in any way as negative, we don't understand covenant. Covenants always had commands. Consider it this way. If the command is like this, breathe. And as long as you obey my command to breathe, you'll live and I'll sustain you to be able to breathe. We're going to come to the fall here in a few minutes where in essence man says, nope, I'm not going to breathe. It's ludicrous. We saw two trees in the garden. And a lot of times we don't know how to see these trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the trees are not standing in the garden as some kind of magical fruit. So the story isn't you, you eat the magical fruit and you turn into, you know, something like a fairy tale. I believe the trees are placed here by God in a sacramental way, a visible form of God's invisible grace. The tree of life is a reminder. It's a reminder to Adam that God who planted the tree is the author of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil serves to teach Adam that God not only sustains his life, but he governs his life. You see, God, not Adam, defines good and evil. And it's for our good, it's for Adam's good, to live in obedience to God, 
to live in submission to God. Man is not autonomous. Man is creature, not creator. And the commands of God are good and right, beautiful, perfect. Tree of knowledge of good and evil was to serve Adam, to remember. He can eat from every tree in the garden, every single one, enjoy it, except that one. That was the reminder to him, you're not your own. If Adam breaks the covenant and the blessings of the garden are forfeited, the covenant is dead and Adam returns to the dust. Again, I mentioned that God had put Adam here as this priestly role to work and to keep the garden. And it, it, it's interesting that those terms are repeated later in the Old Testament in relationship to the priestly work of the Levites in the tabernacle. They were placed in the tabernacle to work and to keep it. So Adam here, like a priest, was to guard his own holiness as well as to protect the garden, the place where God was worshipped from being defiled by sin. And he could only do this by honoring and obeying the word of the Lord. God had spoken and he must obey. So having received the word of, of the Lord, Adam was also then to speak the word of the Lord. He was to speak it to his wife, to speak it to his children that they were eventually to have. In this position of, of proclaiming the word, of calling the people, God's people, to hear it, to obey it, it's remarkably similar to the later role that the Old Testament prophets would play. And finally, Adam and Eve were blessed by God and were given dominion over the earth according to Genesis 1.28. It was a, a, a call, if you will, as God's delegated authority to rule. This kingly role. It consisted of, of stewarding the natural world as well as shepherding and leading the children that God was to bless them with. And all of this would be done for God's glory and for the good of all of creation. And so we see right from the, the start of creation that God is a God who reigns. The Lord reigns over the whole earth and his whole universe. But how? How would God reign? How would he perpetuate his, his reign? He reigns by his word through his people. You can call them gerents if you will. These are, these are his stewards. These are his managers. His, this delegated authority given to Adam. It's amazing if you stop and think about it. That God in all of his wonder and majesty and authority who, who upholds everything would even would, would want to use man but it shows you how God has created man. David saw this in the psalm we read at the beginning of our worship Psalm 8 in verse 3, it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. I feel so small. And yet, verse 5, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. 
This glorious thought of how God is, has made man as the pinnacle of his creation is, is causing David to explode with worship into, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth that you would do this. And so in essence, God would reign through his regents, if you will, his, his under-rulers. In covenant relationship, God delegated rule of his kingdom to man. He delegated service of his temple to man. They were to be priests. He gave them a prophetic role to speak the word of God to all generations. So we see this covenant relationship, God ruling and reigning over all of his creation. And then point two. The fall of Adam. The fall of Adam was a cosmic rebellion against the covenant God, which disastrously affected all of creation. It was Adam saying, no, you won't define good and evil for me. I want to decide for myself what's good, what's right, and what's wrong. Genesis 3 Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, which is the interesting, that the very first time God's word is doubted, it's the serpent. Shows you what he's like. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The fall and the curses go on description of the curses in the fall. But in summation, the fall of man here 
described in Genesis 3 can be understood as a failure in all three of his offices. Failure as a priest. Failure as a prophet. Failure as a king. And that begins the story of redemption. Right at the very crux of the fall. That necessitates the coming of one who would succeed where our first parents failed. We see it in verse 15. It's the first gospel. God responds and says, I will, what is the covenantal language? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. On a cursory glance of that verse, you may not understand what's going on, but when you read through the all of Scripture, when you see the big picture, the big story, you see immediately this promise was fulfilled in Christ. He tells the serpent, you think you're going to win. You think you got him. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring, and that offspring, that one that's going to be born of the woman, is going to bruise your head. It's going to be a true man, 100% human. They don't know yet what that's going to look like, but he's also going to be fully God. And the God-man is going to, yes, have his, his uh, heel bruised. You might bite him on the heel, but in the end, he's going to stomp your head and crush you. This is Grace. This is grace right from the beginning. The grace continues in chapter, in, in chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. We see them try to cover themselves. And ever since the fall, men have been trying to, to self-righteously cover ourselves because of sin. God alone can cover, and so God clothes them. And then in verse 22, he says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They were driven from the presence of God and they are covenantally separated from God, the God of life. Covenantally separated from the tree of life lest, he says, they take of the tree of life and eat it, in essence, seal their fate forever. As they are covenantally separated from God, they are also now alienated from one another. It explains the human condition. It explains every fight and argument in your marriage. It explains all of it. The fall broke the covenantal relationship between God and humanity. Severed, dead, gone. And the fall now affects or devastating it as it affects all relationships between people, 
humanity itself. And, and it goes further than that. The fall affects all of creation, which didn't even do anything. But because of creation, it's covenantally linked to man. And therefore, it's part of the curse in the fall. We see this as Paul talks about it in Romans 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Think about it. The blade of grass, it didn't do anything. My dog didn't do anything. Your cat, well, I don't know about cats, but I'm, I'm not a cat person. I love your cat. Just kidding. Mm. Um, the tree, right? It didn't do anything. But it's a part of creation. It's linked to us. And so because of that, creation waits with this eager longing, waiting. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Talk about this more as we move along, but creation itself is a part of redemption. It's a glorious thing. In the fall, we see sin, the sin of Adam, the sin of Eve, and we see destruction. We see the truth of what sin does. Sin distorts. Sin destroys. Sin devalues and devastates. Diminishes. Brings death. At the fall, the whole of creation is cursed. Subjected to, to futility, to, to corruption. The doctrine of the fall, the truth of, the, of this doctrine means that as a consequence of sin, death and disease and suffering entered into God's good creation. And we're all affected by it. Every single one. Every activity. Every relationship. We're all affected by it. Our first parents forfeited their relationship with God. And in the fall, being born from them, with their nature, we have forfeited our relationship with God and the purpose for which we were created. In the fall, we're not only alienated from God, but he seeks to, man seeks to alienate God's world from its maker by our cultural activity. That's why you see today social reconstruction of the most fundamental of creational norms. The basic building blocks of society from sin's understanding, are illusory and changing. They change with time and culture and wants and feelings. And so we actually adopting the language of Scripture and the concepts of Scripture and twisting and distorting it, we've become progressive. And now sexuality is wide open. Gender, wide open, fluid. Marriage, take it or leave it. 
These are the basic building blocks that God has put into his creation and sin distorts and destroys all of it. Notice in the fall, it was not a fall from spirit into matter. Adam had hands before the fall and he had hands after the fall. It was a fall from righteousness, a fall from holiness, a fall from the godly dominion in this covenantal and immediate intimacy with God into the sin of idolatry, creation worship, self-worship, and the resulting distortion and decay and disruption of every aspect of life because of the severing of our relationship with God. The fall was ethical. The fall was, was moral. And so the great problem of the fall, the great problem of man, of humanity, is the heart. The center of our being. Said this a little bit last week. The problem is not the stuff. The problem is the heart. The problem is not what I do, my hand. The problem is what my heart leads my hand to do, to grasp, to desire, to crave. The history of modern Western Enlightenment thought, which exalts man, says that the fall is a wonderfully positive movement. It's led to a mature and self-determining man. But Adam's rebellion, his cosmic treason to the king of the universe, his, his autonomous choice, far from discovering fulfillment and freedom, has brought shame and guilt in man's relationship with God and with one another. Now the human condition displays our tireless effort to cover up our guilt, to make self-atonement, to live in terms of God's word and instruction it means dependence and responsibility. It meant it at the, in the garden, but it also meant health and joy and peace. And when the serpent came along and tempted them, he was, he was offering them, in essence, a, a work-free world where man could give definition to the world for himself. You decide who you want to be. You make the rules. Adam and Eve were thrown out, literally. God threw them out and divorced them covenantally. And outside of Christ, if we remain in that condition, we are wretched, we are condemned, and we are alienated 
from God's promise. We're without hope, dead in our trespasses and sins, and without God in the world. Outside of Christ, we remain people who are driven from the presence of God, covenantally separated from God and alienated from one another. The urge to return to paradise, it's in our created nature. But that urge is now governed by sin and and, and by the desire to autonomously define good and evil. This is the man's state. He's fallen. What can be done? What would God do? Well, Genesis 3.15 that we read, the snake crusher would come because an agreement from eternity pass in God himself, Father and Son and Holy Spirit was made. Yes, there was a curse, but in the midst of the curse, there was promise. God makes it clear there's no way back to paradise on man's terms. There's only wrath and judgment. There's only death and hell. Alienation from God, total isolation, a place without community or communication or meaning where, where, where man is his own God and he's going to have fun with his friends. No. It's a place of torment. And so man comes up with all these wonderful ideas and concepts to try to restore some type of utopia and bring us to some type of perfection. But the key, the key for us to understand, to think like Christians, is to plot the path from Adam to Jesus Christ. Point three, Jesus Christ, our covenant head, is progressively placing all things under his rightful reign. You see, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden is the essential foundation for understanding the big picture of gospel history. And the gospel is is cosmic in scope. And in the cross, all creation is being restored in proper relation to its creator and its owner. And that's where I, don't, I, th- I think a lot of Christians, we've missed it. Because we've missed the doctrine of creation and we've missed the doctrine of the fall. And so we've made our faith an internal, private, spiritual thing. Which it is. But we've failed to allow a full-orbed faith to govern our minds and our thoughts and lead us in such a way that that faith could be applied to every area of life. If the scriptures say that God is glorified in eating and drinking or whatever we do, how is that done? It's done in the prayer closet. 
in a private act of piety, certainly. But it's done at your business. It's done in your home when you're cooking dinner. It's done as you're at school studying. We are to have a full-orbed faith that affects every area of our life. We're going to spend the next eight weeks covering what that looks like. Jesus Christ is our covenant head. What does that mean? Uh, scripture explains it in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. In Romans 5, verses 12, verse 12, it says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. When we see that word type, it's the Greek word typos. And it means, among other things, a shape. And, 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 and so do you all remember what a typewriter is? Anybody remember, know what a typewriter is? It, it, when you hit a key on a typewriter, the typewriter is the shape of a letter leaving an impress on the paper. And that shape leaves that, that imprint, that impress. And the idea of typology has to do with what we see in the New Testament. We, we see these indications of patterns and people from the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, who were, in a sense, created to serve as prefigured shapes of what Jesus would be like and do. They pointed to Christ. It's a great study to get into if you want to look at types and shadows. Adam here in Romans is said to be a type of Christ. But in essence, he's a reverse type. He does not point to Christ in a way that's positive. He points to Christ in a way that was a reverse. He falls because he fails as prophet, as priest, and king. Jesus succeeds where Adam fails, is what Paul is saying. And because of that, he represents all of humanity, just as Adam was our federal head, if you will, our representative. When he went, fell into sin, we all fell. Everyone that was in Adam, if you will, that has come from Adam and through Adam since then is fallen, is a sinner, not only by actions, but by nature. Christ comes, the one who was promised all the way back from the beginning, the anointed one, the one who would be the ruler, the one who would reign. He is the new head of a new humanity, and he represents us. In his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, he as man, fully man and fully God, represents us. When it comes to our sin, God had a dilemma. Yes, man has a dilemma. What are we to do? Well, there's really nothing you can do. So our covenant God 
does it himself. Amazing. It's glorious. The second person of the Trinity, eternally God, the eternal word. The beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh. Became man. Just let it sink in. The eternal creator became man. He lived the only perfect life. He died not for his own sin, but for the sin of others. And he rose, showing he is Yahweh Elohim, the covenant creator God with power over all of nature. Power over death itself. He rose from the grave. And he calls man, he commands man to repent, believe. He, in essence, stands, stands before fallen man as a tree of life. That if you eat its fruit, you live forever, restored totally and completely. It's of particular note when you read through the scriptures and understand the whole of it that the concluding crescendo of the glory of Christ is his ascension and his session. We don't talk about that often. We speak of his death and rightly so. We speak of his resurrection as we never should stop. But he tells his disciples, it's better for you that I leave. Why? He had a body. He's a man. It's better for you that I leave because I'm going to send my spirit who is not geographically limited to everyone who believes in me. And you're going to take this gospel, this good news, you're going to spread it. It's going to start really small. It's going to be like, like yeast in leaven. It's going to infiltrate. The next thing you know, it's going to fill And the glory of the knowledge of God would fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. Jesus ascends to heaven to sit down at the right hand of God, sit down on the throne to reign. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 21, it says, For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, verse 25, 
until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is a quote from Psalm 110. It's the, it's the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. The apostles loved this verse. It was something that they, they, they looked to with incredible majesty and glory in the session of Christ, the, the ruling of Christ. It's from Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's an ancient way of understanding the conquering king, a ruler who would come. You, you see it as, as Joshua uh, conquered the promised land. You see it throughout history where they would come in and the enemy king would stand before them and, and they would step down and they'd put their foot on their neck showing we reign over you. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says that he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. How does he reign? Through his word. Through his word. And as his word is proclaimed and repented of breaking and faith is placed in his word, as our lives are more and more conformed to the image of Christ, and as we, we think Christianly in a full-orbed faith that, that extends the glory of God in eating and drinking and whatsoever we do, the glory of God is advancing. The glory of God is moving forward. And there's beauty and glory and hope. You see, the good news really is good news. It's good news for you even right now. Not just a, a someday, and I know there's pain and there's struggle, because a lot of people we struggle with. Jesus is, is on the throne. If, if he ascended to heaven and he sat down and he's, he's, he's running his universe, why is there so much pain? Why is there suffering? We understand from Scripture that the, the rule of God is an already and a not yet. He promised us great, marvelous, beautiful, glorious things and tribulation. And we're not to be those who would be escapists from we just want everything easy and life to be good. You see, the struggle is what makes the story marvelous. Think about any story. Your favorite movie, your favorite, it's, it's the struggle and overcoming that makes it glorious. And if, if we would think and understand that, that as a covenant God, he works covenantally well, why doesn't he just save us and come down and make everything perfect and right and good? Because he's a covenant God. He works covenantally and redemptively in history, in real time and real space with real people and real matter. That's how he does his work, not esoterically. Instant glory, we're after. And when we think that way, we, we recognize or we reveal that we don't understand covenant. It's relational and it's historical. God works in the beauty and the br brutality of, of real time and space. God's people must trust him as he works. This should leave us with hope. Great hope. How do Christians think? We are a hopeful people. We're not a bunch of lemon-sucking looking people. Well, we should not be. History began with humanity working or serving God in a garden, and history will end with a renewed humanity working in a renewed and enhanced garden city. 
according to Revelation 22. And our covenant God is sovereignly and redemptively bringing history to his goal for his glory and for our good. How do we see it? Because way too often we're myopic, self-centered, self-focused. It's about us, it's about our generation, it's about our time and our place. And we don't think as big as we should because we don't see the plan of God as big. The Puritans are a people not perfect, but they understood some things like this that we don't in our generation. The pilgrims who came over on the Mayflower to the United States fleeing religious persecution were mighty men and women of God. I just want you to hear how they think as Christians in the midst of some real suffering. William Bradford, who was the governor of the Plymouth Plantation there, wrote these words in his book about how they saw themselves. He said, last and not least, they cherished a great hope, an inward zeal of laying good foundations, or at least making some way towards it for the propagation and the advance of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in the remotest parts of the world, even though they should be but stepping stones to others in the performance of such a great work. How do Christians think? We see the big picture. We see that God is creator, we see the fall of man, and we see what he's doing in redemption. And we understand we're a part of the big story. And we understand that that big story gives meaning to everything we do, and everything we say, and everything we think. And it means that it's not all about me. And it means that sometimes I should, for the kingdom of Christ and the advance of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ, consider myself a stepping stone. I'm going to lay down so future generations can walk on me. So everything I do matters. Every day I wake up matters. Every day you wake up matters. Every day, parents, your kids are going to walk on you. They're going to step forward from, from what you do and, and, and teach in their lives. Our nation is going to step on us and move forward or not. For the last 50, 100 years, we have not done a good job, Christians. I pray that we would think with the hope of the Puritans. Ian Murray said this about the hope of the Puritans. Colored, their, their hope 
he said, colored the spiritual thought of the American colonies. It taught men to expect great outpourings of the Holy Spirit. It prepared the way to the new age of world missions, and it contributed largely to that sense of destiny which came to characterize the English-speaking Protestant nations. When 19th century Christian leaders such as William Wilberforce viewed the world not so much as a wreck from which individual souls must escape, but rather as the property of Christ to whose kingdom the earth and the fullness thereof must belong, their thinking bore the genuine hallmark of the Puritan outlook. May the God, the God of all grace and glory reform our minds and thinkings the same.